You know, we do a weekly podcast on addiction. And usually we sort of warm up somewhere along the way and we say, oh, what do we discuss? And then, you know, sometimes we say, oh, geez, I wonder if there's anything more or new to discuss. And then usually after about five or 10 minutes, we sort of come up with like, huh, what about that? And then we don't have much to discuss. (laughs) Deal with all of them. So I'm I'm gonna make one quick observation uh, as I often mention, I'm old. People didn't used to talk about mental health and addiction all the time in the 1950s mm-hmm. when I was growing up, and that more so in the 60s because of the drug revolution. Um, I'm just going to throw out a quick and ponderable question. Are we a happier society in the last 50 or 70 years, do you think? No. I, I don't feel that way. One quick answer to why everybody's so preoccupied with addiction and mental health is we're not doing so well. And so we're kind of scrutinizing ourselves to try and come up with the answers for things. And, and I'm not, I'm not an, obviously, I'm the opposite of an anti-intellectual. People just used to kind of do things more. And um, certainly, and we're going to talk about that pretty quickly about mm-hmm. kids. Kids just kind of used to do things, and that's a good way to live. But um, one of the things that's been in the news that we're not going to talk about, because it's a giant topic, and we've talked about it somewhat in the past, is the Wall Street Journal revealed that uh, Facebook has done secret research showing that um, teenage girls are have a large degree of addiction to Instagram with negative consequences. So that's a whole schmear that we're not gonna get into. The uh, article in the Times said something like, um, Instagram is the new cigarettes. And you know, it's hard to remind people that cigarettes weren't referred to as addictive until the 1980s. And I do all development there in 1964, the Surgeon General's report about smoking and health revealed that smoking caused cancer. It had a chapter on smoking addiction and it said smoking wasn't addictive. And when I present that, my joke is to a bunch of hippies, they all go, well, that's because the tobacco companies have paid them all off. And I said, you think a report that announced that smoking causes cancer is something that tobacco companies said, hey, why don't we fund this? And then I have to explain to them, people thought about addiction in a whole different light back then. Addictions come to mean something very different. And um, that was just the state of knowledge at the time. And so now, and some people blame me for this. I wrote Love and Addiction with Archie in 1975, but I didn't, I didn't mean for us to quite crazy out on it in this exact form. So we're not gonna talk about this time, Facebook saying Instagram is addictive in a destructive way for teen girls, but I'm- What, uh, inter- what interests you about that? Uh, but I know we could go a go trillion on. different directions with it, but what is, I guess you're getting there, but what's interesting to you about that on the surface that well, made you wanna bring it up now? Now it is, <clears throat> I mean, the basic thing that you and I are saying, and it's, we're going to talk about it, I think, when we talk about Lenore Skenazi, is that addiction is a normal part of human functioning. And when people get dragged into situations that are emotionally compelling, and, and it's sure when they're younger, it's sort of like a good money after bad situation. They sort of put themselves on the line. Mm. They get some negative feedback it compels them to reimmerse themselves. That seesaw of human behavior is universal. And when you package it in a direct fashion, I mean, you might say something like, well, Instagram is the reduced version of even Facebook and, and email. And it's sort of like injecting it. Oh my God, here's how they reacted to it right mm-hmm. now. 
Mm-hmm. How did I react? How am I going to react to it right now? It's intense. And so it's a, you know, we're getting, you know, think about it as well. They've, tobacco has been around a long time, but when they had hand-rolled cigarettes, commercial cigarettes, it became addictive in a new way because you didn't have to smoke a pipe and do all that stuff. You just go, you could be, you know, high, you could be flooded with nicotine the whole day. And now you're going to be flooded the whole day with Instagram. So I couldn't resist. This is the New York Times had an article called How to Spot a Love Addict. And then they're debating is love addictive. And this is a topic you and I have chatted about. There's somebody named Helen Fisher, who's a big deal, professor of anthropology who talks almost exclusively in neuroscience terms. Anybody who says it's not an addiction, all I can tell you is that we've looked in the brain. They've looked in the brain and now they know that love is addictive. You mean before they could look in the brain, they couldn't tell if love was addictive? They had to be able to look in the brain to decide that love is addictive. What's that? What? I don't know. What's your reaction to that? What's addiction mean? You can't identify it by any sort of standards in normal life. You know, it's no one. And the disease that that represents. Oh, I didn't know. um, I didn't know love was addictive. But then we looked at MRIs, and this is what they. that's called reductionism. And we're going to- Can you imagine, can you imagine the conversation that, um, you know, are you having trouble in your love relationship? No. Uh, is it giving you benefits? Yeah. All right, let's take a look at your brain. That, you know what? You have addiction. <clears throat> and then you got to ask, well, is it, too, is it cancerous? No. Is it uh, harming me physically? No, I'm just telling you, you have addi- you thought it was good, but you have addiction. I mean, it's just not a- reasonable way to think about the world, to think about people. And that, about. And, I mean, we could go all the way back. Nora Volko is sneaking <clears throat> away, and we're maybe going to talk about somebody who's sneaking in to dopamine. Nora Volko mm. came in saying it's all about the dopamine. She doesn't say that anymore. And the simplest reason why it's not all about the dopamine is people take cocaine and they observe certain neurochemical rushes and A, Some people say, gosh, I'm gonna go do that again. And some people say, whatever. And some of the people who say, wow, I'm gonna do that again, somewhere down the pike, a couple of months, a couple of years say, you know, I'm gonna knock this off. So all of those people have the same brain scans when they take the cocaine, it has a somewhat similar effect in the brain. How they feed off that whether they behave in a way that we would call addicted in the first place, and whether they, what the term is now recovery, achieve remission and when, are not only are they separate questions, but they're the questions we're interested in. So we're back to Dr. Helen Fisher, who I kind of know indirectly, using functional magnetic resonance imaging. Woo! I am blown Top away. Of the line, baby. Dr. Fisher and her colleagues have studied romantic love and found increased activity in a brain region called the nucleus acubens. Quote, that becomes active when anything becomes an addiction, alcohol or nicotine or cocaine or heroin or amphetamines or any one of those things. Oh, my God. I've got to call bullshit. No, but I mean, if you had an area of the brain that could specify which people came addicted to any one of those things, but to all of them, you know, they'd give you the Nobel Prize tomorrow. Mm. So that's, I mean, she's, I'm, she's famous for quartering the, well, there are a number of people competing for that market. And I think we have on our roster to talk about one of them who appeared on the biggest podcast in America. But some in the scientific community don't even accept love addiction as a diagnosis. Love addiction is a contested concept, says Brian Earp of Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy. He noted that some of the disagreement comes down to the definition of love itself. 
Some feminist philosophers argue that if a relationship is toxic or abusive, it shouldn't even be labeled as love. Addiction, Mr. Erb said, adding that some prefer to label addiction to toxic relationship behaviors. I did write a book with Archie Brodsky called Love and Addiction. I did say, we did say love and addictive relationships are the opposite, one of the other. Mm. Love relationships make you feel better about yourself and enhance your life. And addictive relationships, I, he wants to call it addiction to toxic relationship behaviors. Is that really a big improvement in terminology? You think that's going well, to apply? It's longer. I, and, you know, with the example, the most easy example to give is somebody's in an abusive relationship, a physically abusive relationship, and they get beat up and hurt and even killed. Nobody would call that love. Mm-hmm. And nobody would even be attempted to call it love. And, you know, there are quite a few of those relationships going around. And, and people are very disgruntled, and, and, and yet people can't unattach themselves, detach themselves from those relationships. That's a famous syndrome uh, with, you know, abused women, but men as well. And so love and addiction, that's a pretty simple title. We didn't have a subtitle. Maybe we should have had a subtitle. But they're right on the book jacket, it says that putting the two words together seems strange. Because actually, in our conceptualization, they're the opposite of one of one another. How many times have you seen this pop up since you wrote the book? I mean, endless times, right? I've, I recall a few years ago, <clears throat> I was slightly more naive about the topic, but I still thought about things in a common sense way. We were talking about Harvey Weinstein. You remember that? Yeah. I mean, we had, I don't know if it was like a disagreement that we had or something. It was just a different emphasis that we had on it. My... I. <clears throat> That the idea was that, well, Harvey Weinstein, was he addicted to sex? And of course, it, it was this, I forget this lady's name that you just brought up, but it was this same kind of argument. Well, at UC, California, whatever, and all these universities, they do show that sex is addictive because of brain imagery. And there's this other argument that says sex addiction, that's just, that's uh, you know, a poor argument for, it's an excuse. And this brain research shows that sex isn't addictive. And my idea there was, what are you talking about? This is a horrible, dichotomous argument. Uh, of course, you could become addicted to sex, and maybe Harvey Weinstein was, it's possible. Uh, more likely, I think he was just, uh, there, there was a lot more narcissistic behavior going on in his life than just sex with women. But but one way or another, you, you, could, good point. You, you could do two things at once. You know, you can... Be happy, you're going to have an addiction and have a soul focus well, on yourself. A fundamental point. I mean, <laughs> if you rape somebody, that's just a crime. Right, right, right. And, you know, you have to be punished exactly. for crime. And, you know, while you're in prison, Harvey Weinstein's in prison, you know, he can select any therapy he wants. I guess one thing I was curious about was, was he seeking more than sex? I'm always... That's... Right. I mean, did he want to be loved? <clears throat> mm. uh, you know, I mean, and, and I think one of the things we said is love is a more powerful addiction than sex. I don't want to go too far. I'm not, I don't want to go too far. Yeah, yeah. Addiction. Harvey Weinstein's poison. Yeah, I mean, there's no I mean, argument he, there. He tried. To, I'm going to leave it at he was trying to do a lot of things at once he committed a crime and we were interested in the, in and the topic and, and in jail. <clears throat> you're not allowed to have sex with people don't want to have sex with you the bottom and line you know, is that our our argument there was that not only yes his defense team was making an excuse sex addiction was an excuse and we were saying at the opposite end on the opposite side of that coin people who were saying no sex addiction can't be real because look at this brain research are feeding that sort of mechanism by which they can make that excuse. So this is anyway, I just remember that was the first time I really dove down into such a, you know, poorly framed argument. On our podcast and put us down for even having that discussion. So I'm Mm. really wary about that, but I mean, it does generalize. I have testified in capital murder cases 
where the defense was the man was addicted to cocaine. And I mean, I think I've told this story before. Um, the defense attorney said, are you telling me that my mother who didn't quit, smoke, quit smoking 12 years ago doesn't wake up every morning, you know, yearning for a cigarette? And then I said, oh, has, would she go down to the corner store and kill the guy who sells her the which this gentleman did, kill the guy who sells her the cigarettes in order to make sure she had a supply? Right. And then cut off his head and hands so he can't be identified. And she swirled around and screeched off. Um, you know, people are addicted to all sorts of things without committing crimes. And, you know, so there's a legal obligation to society. And one, re and one way of showing that people are, you know, able is to commit, is to tell people that addiction doesn't excuse uh, uncontrollable behavior. And in a way that's part of therapy. I mean, when people hear Helen Fisher says, well, it's in your brain, um, she sort of, it's, it's, and we, you know, there's research that shows this. It's, um, it's showing people, it makes them less likely to believe that they can change their behavior. And, they're more likely to identify themselves as, as that sort of a thing. The whole point is that we mean addiction. <clears throat> you and I think about addiction in a different way than most human beings. And part of what we're gonna talk about today is your interview with Lenore Skenazi. And I, you know, I, I was gonna begin that discussion by saying, um, <clears throat> Um, you told me a story. I mean, you're so much younger than me, I can't even place you in time and space. <laughs> but when 9-11 occurred, some people oh, yeah. said something like, I mean, I think there were 12 guys involved in crashing those planes into the buildings. Something had to be off in their brain chemistry to make them do that. <laughs> yeah. What grade were you in? <clears throat> I, was a sophomore. I was a sophomore in high school. I was uh, 14 at the time. And you objected to that formulation. Can you? Yeah, I, I questioned it at least. Yeah, and I, she thought I was just razzing her. Um, my objection was, she said, well, these have to be clinically insane people. I don't know if she put it in those terms, but it was something like that. And <clears throat> I didn't have as good of a conceptualization of, at the time about the you way human routine. beings act. You cut your break. But I... But I did, I did intuit, I said, I think that people do a lot of, I think the, there are a lot of people in the world in history, this is a history class, civics class, <clears throat> who have done bad, object, you know, objectively bad things, but they're not crazy. Like they're feeding into a, a belief system about what they ought to be doing. The, the reason I think she thought it was a jab is I added, I think that some teachers at this school do things that they know are actually harmful to the students that they that they teach, uh, but they're good. But they're but, but they're good people. Yeah, yeah. I, I could have. I would have. I would have left that out now. But um, so that's reductionism of a different kind. It's reducing historical elements to clinical dimensions. Right. And we did discuss how Americans like to reduce problems to simple solutions, and. Again, we're going to encapsulate a lot in a small space here. You can't understand America's problems around the world, dealing with Muslims and dealing with Middle Eastern countries in any simple like, oh, they're bad, we're good, or clinically, oh, well, right. those guys who crashed those planes in are crazy. That You're not going to get anywhere with that. You have to take a larger non-reductive approach and say, well, there's some larger dynamic going on here in world history and power politics and how we've treated these countries in the past and their reactions to us. Um, you know, if you got a bunch of people at the Defense Department sitting around that trying to figure out, well, just how crazy, you know, uh, Osama, Osama bin Laden was, mm -hmm. 
you're not going to get you're not going to get to the bottom of anything. And then all those people that follow him. So, I mean, I guess what amuses me about that story is you're intuitive. You know, at 14, you weren't ready to write your PhD dissertation. Rejection of reductionism. Well, you know, it's not, that didn't happen because they're a bunch of crazy people. They recruited these people and they all believed that this was the right thing to do. And so we- And, and it was more like, um, I, the reason I jumped on it truly was like, <clears throat> I was thinking, um, more than just that that can't be the case was how would you know that that would be the case? Um, so I knew it was reductionistic, I guess, because it was, I don't remember, I, I was convinced it was the day of uh, a classmate of mine who I still talk to said it was a week after. So I don't know, memory was weird like that, but, <clears throat> but it was young enough of a story that I thought, how do you know? No one, we don't know anything about these individuals yet. You don't know that they're clinically insane or whatever. They did no exam. They certainly didn't do brain scans. Right, right. Like, uh, you know, that bullshit, Helen mm. Fisher's concept. Um, they didn't do anything. They didn't, at the time, they hadn't talked to them or know, knew anything about them. Um, and what their histories were. I know, you know, maybe their relatives had been killed in some bomb raid. Right. You know, during with the fight with the Israelis. Things like that can turn people highly bitter. Mm -hmm. So I bring this up by saying you and I have some sense of addiction and it's different. You know, we're constantly fighting because there's an established way of thinking about addiction. And sometimes we're trying to introduce a whole new mindset to people. And you, we organized this podcast about around you kind of speaking about your interview with Lenore Skenazi and, you know, how was your general impression of how well you communicated with Lenore? I think she was able to deliver her basic message to me. Um, and I thought she felt heard. And I think she was curious about where I was going with the whole addiction thing, you know, as kids grow up, that independence is still important or, even when kids are younger than the kids that she's usually dealing with, that independence is important. Um, I think she's open-minded and highly intelligent. <clears throat> I know you had some, you know, you would have liked me to expand on uh, some of those. I mean, I guess I got out ahead of myself. To me, the connection between Lenore Skenazi's work, and we've written about this, you know, in our growing addiction, um, how do people become, it's right. part of our whole scheme. Why do people become more or less prone to addiction? And Lenore Skenazi plugs directly into that. <clears throat> right, right. You uh, say how she plugs directly into that in your, in your mind. Oh, sure. Well, she is, she's doing us um, and, I, and she doesn't know it. And that was part of why I wanted to speak to her is that what she's talking about is but parents feeling able to help foster independence and risk-taking and just living a mindful, you know, interesting life for their children so that they can develop skills and resources and a sense of the real world out there and how detrimental it is when kids can't do that or parents, parents feel as though they're not allowed to, to allow that level of independence. We say that being able to do all of those things that she's boosterish about is the, it's like an addiction prevention toolkit. And so that's a big leap for Lenore and I didn't see her being <laughs> making it in your interview with her. Mm. And I mean, the simplest way to describe, you know, I mean, it, I've said it 10 million times, addiction isn't about drugs. Uh, yeah. It's in something more general than <clears throat> Well, the thing I think I missed there um, before you get into it is that you could tell this. She she felt like, as most people do, addiction is a totally different ballgame. And she's certainly not qualified to speak about it. So she was timid about speaking about it and uh, perhaps was naive about what 
maybe addiction means or a broader conceptualization of it than you usually hear about drug taking, et cetera. And so she said, she had originally talked to you previously about, I don't know, being worried about drugs. I don't know, maybe with her own, how many children does she have? I think she has two. She just talked about two. Um, but then when it came to it, she said, well, aren't, isn't drug use and alcohol use going down? Right. <clears throat> and then you kind of gave a mini answer. Do you remember what you said? Now I can't remember exactly what I said. <clears throat> I don't know if this is it, but well, what I meant. You don't think addiction. I mean, we talked about this whole thing where people are, I mean, it's kind of all over the media. Uh, yeah, yeah. The yeah. whole, you know, Facebook, Instagram. Right, right. If you take just if you take addiction means doing drugs away and you broaden the concept and you think about just life and how are you doing? Are you fixated on one thing more than another or things to your debt to your detriment? It, it's clear that, you know, addiction to all sorts of things are very prominent and a huge problem. And there's a flip side to that, which is so people will have a hard time making that jump, although it's out there constantly. Mm -hmm. And the other part of that jump is the harm reduction side, which people are pushing, Carl Hart, famous people are pushing, that I don't think Lenore was comfortable with, which is, yeah. you know, people take drugs and alcohol without being addicted. I mean, I just so happened to be at a little gathering somewhere in my neighborhood here, South Park Slope. They're having a picnic outside. You know, I'm sober. I can't talk for five or 10 minutes without getting into similar topics, you know, <laughs> you know, asking people like, how do they drink? I mean, I'm not going to usually ask them about how they take drugs, you know, in a place like that. So, you know, I would have said the North Kanazi sounds like i don't know much about her background possibly she's like from some eastern european country you know well do you drink lenore when did you start drinking how did you learn mm -hmm. how to drink what are your attitudes towards alcohol her son i know is funny <laughs> in the interview um what do you think about your son drinking and then a big leap would be well you think about your son taking drugs, you know, and you, you didn't get into any of that. And it might have created a firestorm. But I don't, I don't know how she would react to the alcohol thing. Do you know? I'm not sure, but I have a sense that at a practical level, she could she could buy into that concept. Now, what makes you think that she's what makes what made you say that she's uncomfortable with the concept? Well, she just, when you say, oh, isn't drug and alcohol use going down? Mm. Well, first of all, I thought in your pre-interview, she said something like, well, you know, I'm naturally worried about drugs. But when you're talking, you said, well, drug and alcohol use is going down. That doesn't mean anything to me. You know, I mean, I was, she herself did say that anxiety and depression are going up among kids. Right. Right. He brought that up. And so that already shows that, well, we're not interested in alcohol and drugs. We're interested in functioning people. Mm -hmm. And if their anxiety and depression are going up, which I agree with, that's bad. And how does that interact with alcohol and drugs? I, I just, I'm guessing she wouldn't be comfortable with our whole, our whole schmear. I just think she's not aware of it. I'm interested to know, uh, you know if I had, let's say, three or four hours with her, what, what that would have been like. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I think she's not aware of that. I, it was one of those things where it's like, um, oh, that's the addiction department. I, that's solely not my uh, wheel, wheelhouse. So I, I'm not going to speak to that. But she did have the idea that, well, that I mean, drugs and alcohol equal addiction. You're interested in her work. Right, right. Because you're interested in addiction. Everything and addiction for us is such a broad concept, which doesn't it doesn't mean that we smear it all over or not doesn't have any meaning we feel that it, it illuminates a ton of problems like mm -hmm. instagram problem if you're armed with the concept of and love addiction if you're armed with the sound understanding of what addiction is which is what my life work is about um 
then you can deal readily with, well, is a love relationship addictive? Well, if it's destructive, it's an addiction. Otherwise, it can be a positive, loving relationship. Um, how are kids addicted to Instagram? Well, it's a normal human process. And especially if kids are locked up, you imagine a, a big pandemic thing where they're not going outside, which that's an example of where it ties directly into Lenore. So I, the thing is, and I'll lead right into your next thing, but the thing that I was trying to tell her, which I think you're pointing out, is that if she had that discomfort and saying, um, well, this is like above my pay grade, I don't talk about addiction, I just talk about like normal stuff, I was saying I do talk about addiction and I'm telling you that your work feeds right into you know the the positive aspects of human life that help people avoid things like addiction and uh she she really didn't want to touch it so maybe that maybe I see what you're saying I mean uh, she's that, uncomfortable I, she didn't leap into that <clears throat> chasm and right. so um I wrote we see addiction as going beyond drugs which is what you said we're not anti-drug and alcohol use even for kids and young people which is you think she'd be able to endorse that? I, that's a tough one. I don't know. Yeah. Questions. What is drug? Uh, what? What is your attitude towards your son's drinking and drug use? That's a tough one for people. Yeah. I mean, that, it's sort of the toughest topic to imagine. Um, it. It's tough with alcohol when people have been giving alcohol to kids forever. Mm. You know, I wonder if her cultural experience includes that. But kids taking drugs, that's a long stretch. And then I would have gone somewhere else and I would have said, what do you think of the three involvements you worry most about with kids? And I would put, well, the Instagram thing, they talk about girls becoming suicidal. And, you know, they talk about body image and self-acceptance, that's one thing. Um, I, you know, people think about, I think about, you know, people getting in, immersed in a bad relationship yep. up to and including death. Mm -hmm. You can't get involved with somebody who's gonna stunt your whole life. And okay, you know, not a, as rarely as you think you can get involved with somebody who can kill you. And so I happen to have two daughters. I don't think that could ever happen to them. And for a variety of reasons, they have purpose, they're self-assertive, they value themselves. I didn't, I never had those worries. Yeah, that's one of the thing if you were asking me, I would say I, I'm concerned about <clears throat> for my own kid. And for kids in general, and I work with kids, is the idea that they they develop an over reliance on other people or other things to do important life work, and um, for them, it's back to the whole. Uh, we're back to Instagram. You know, if you're sitting mm -hmm. there, that's your social life. If the, that's your whole stupid, forgive me. If you're not like, and you know, the quickest answer to that is, well, you know, if you're doing something else that you want to do, you know, music or reading or writing or studying, even having a real relationship with somebody, mm -hmm. and you won't get sucked into that kind of a negative vortex. Although, you know, at some time in your life, that's going to happen to, you know, most people, girls and boys alike. And, you know, you want them to be self-respecting enough. I mean, there are people that quit school to go with some boyfriend in a relationship that's going to be over in six months. Nobody wants their kid to... Right. A high school student said to me recently, it's just like so profound, but also so obvious. And it's a reason I say I don't worry about him. He said that one of the greatest things about technology for him, social media ways that you can do things, you know, things are, you're able to get things done in a, in a second or things are at your fingertips is the return to normal life with your sense, with all of your senses and the ability to get embarrassed or excited or whatever, sort of feeling naturally like you're interacting with the world. That's the great, the best part for him is that you can use this tool until you totally feel like you've used it up 
And then there's this, there's actually a release on the other end where you can start experiencing the world again. And he thinks that's the coolest thing. About is, he, is he saying that he would actually go out and experience the world or the technology allows him to be in the no, world? No, no. He's saying the best thing about technology is the break from it. Like it's, it's so interesting and so much like it can feel so much like real life that once you are done using technology for whatever it's used for, going and just living real life feels so good. Um, which is an interesting thing well, to say. One way you can go, but the Instagram stories that we're are talking about are people who that becomes in their life, which is sort of... Right. But that's what I'm saying is that this kid is not uh, a candidate, let's say, in my book for so your problem. That, that's something you like to hear from a kid. Right. I exactly. had a pretty decent day today. I, I don't know if I'm the only person in the world. I'm beginning to write my next book about truth telling and I'm writing it on my iPhone. Do you hmm. think a lot of people are writing books on iPhones these days? I'm just one of many. I can, I could see it. I, I couldn't do it. I don't think, but I could understand. I could see how that would be. Yeah, I make a ton yeah. of mistakes. You got to go over it. Cause yeah. Right. Right. But it's kind of convenient, you know yeah. what I mean? And you know, you you don't need broadband to do, you know, Google docs on your iPhone. And so then, uh, th today, you know, today I would claim was a good day. My, the woman who cleans my apartment was coming, so I wanted to get out. And I had to get out. My bike was having some problems. So there's a hardware store on Flatbush Avenue with a little old Italian guy. I mean, he's been there for 50 years or something. And he knows how to fix bikes. Yeah. Other things. Right. So I went over. I haven't seen him in like maybe six months, you know, but he's not jealous. He doesn't say, where you been? You only come when you need more. And he adjusted my brakes and my gear shift. And he charges me every time I do it, $5. And so I brought $5 and I laid it down, you know. And on the way home, I went through South Park Slope. There's a really nice houses and there was a bunch of people there. And I sort of feel, well, I kind of live in this neighborhood. So I got on my bike and I started hanging out and eating the food, you know. And, um, you know, one Asian woman came up and was extremely hospitable. And then I started going to another woman um, who's about my age and who rides a bike, you know. And so I interacted with a bunch of people, you know. I wrote a book on my iPhone, got a guy to fix my bike, you know, and it works really smoothly. And then I interacted with a ton of new people. Um, so I had used technology. I'm going back to an old technology. You know, the guy knows how to fix my, I have a bike that's about 30 years old. I found it in the basement of some place I lived in. And then, you know, these are upper class, you know, upper middle class people. We were outside. The pandemic's sort of over for them. You know what I mean? They're not buying that whole, Nobody was wearing a mask, but we were all outside. Yeah. And so they, they're people who generally look after their health. And so we're getting back to the question of we're conveying the idea that being able to be involved in real world is the opposite of being addicted. And so then she said some things she talked about, well, she's involved in a program that gets kids to do independent things like at recess and all. Uh, I had a reaction to that. Um, you're structuring, I mean, the story she tells, a prototypical story about her son was he was nine years old, I think, and he just went to Bloomingdale's. And Bloomingdale's is just a place in New York you have to take a subway. That's real life. You know, and you have to figure out how to take the subway. And he, I think right. he got turned around. He had to ask somebody. You know, that's happened a lot of times in New York City, I would say, over the last 100 years. And so I have a little bit of a negative reaction when you have to set up a real-world environment type. Oh, look, this playground's a lot like the real world. And, I, you know, I've seen playgrounds like that. As opposed to kids going out, like, in the actual real world, you know, and actually doing things yeah that's funny that you had the negative reaction to it because 
that part of what she was saying made me hopeful that she could buy into a concept like harm reduction because that seemed like harm reduction to me. <clears throat> like the place that kids are playing already is the playground. Parents worry that, um, you know, if you, if you let kids, parents and teachers worry, if you let kids have unstructured play, aren't they all going to die or something like that? And so, uh, and what are other parents going to think of me or what are, or what are parents or other teachers going to think of me, the teacher? And so at least, at the very least, you can have something like um, the same playground, the same school, the same kids, and let them all play freely. And it's designed where, you know, it's one person, so you you satisfy the whole, there's an adult thing there. And all those kids who never get unstructured time get unstructured time for that period of time. Sort of like, uh, you know, you get to get it in your mind that isn't this, you could look at the whole thing and say, this is okay, no one's dying, nothing's burning. But you thought about it differently. You thought about do you know, uh, do you know the one thing when Cash just got home, do you know the one thing from visiting you, my grandson? Mm -hmm. Do you know the one thing he told his mother about? It was just like top of the list, the one thing that was just completely on the top of his mind. Oh, tell me. Going out in um what are those kind of boats called? The kayaks. Into Lake Champlain. Yeah. You know, I I I mean, I live, I swim in the Atlantic Ocean. So I know big body, and I've taken caches, and I took all my kids to the ocean. That Lake Champlain is pretty big, you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, yeah. and he sort of didn't know how to do it. But, you know, of course, we put a life vest on, for God's sake. And then he, you know, did it. So, you're saying uh, you're saying the playground's not an adventure, and it, and being able to actually have real life adventures in the real world are what kids need. You can't you can't do this uh, outreach program only from the auspices of a playground. And that's my tendency is to always do things like that. And I always thought of doing things. Like that. And here's the next jump, the next leap. What about them doing productive actual? real world thing. And I thought back, I, I have, I mentioned two daughters, I have a son, he's a tech guy. I, I, he's pretty good at it. I used to have a gig where I used to do insurance research for the AARP. And in, this is before your time, you used to make um, transparencies on some see-through thing and then put it on a, a thing that casts light through it. And I needed, you know, graphs. And mm -hmm. um, when Dana was about my, you know, Cassius's father was about 13, I would pay him $5 a graphic. Because, you know, I mean, maybe I could have figured it out, but he knew how to do it. Yep, I do things like that all the time. And I give him five bucks. And, you know, I got paid considerably more. So I was okay on it. And then when I would show them at the AARP headquarters with the big brass, I would say, oh, my 13-year-old son made these. So, you know, and everybody laughed. <laughs> they all thought it was funny. And then, you know, they were simple graphs, you know, this group buys this insurance. <clears throat> but, you know, and I tried to do that with all of my kids. He had some skills that, you know, I could just sort of like pull in. So <clears throat> the reason I, and I, I always was aware of, with Anna, at one point, I actually suggested that she write a screenplay about a kid who's, and she came up with a plot, a kid whose best friend was the daughter of the president. And so she wrote a whole screenplay. And then I sent it, you know, to an agent. And the agent said, well, I'll try and sudden it around. Nobody bought it, but the agent didn't say, this is the crazy, I said, I don't know, wouldn't this be funny if a 13-year-old girl wrote the screenplay or, you know, gave the idea? And the agent said, huh, I'll, you know. Let me tell you that I, you know that I don't think that that's so crazy that you're doing that. But um, just as an example, um, my I teach music to students. And the way I think about music and teaching to students, I... I don't jump into music theory right away. I think about it like there's a famous um, uh, bass player, Victor Wooten. I, I don't know if you know, he plays with Bela Fleck and the, the Fleck tones. And 
one way he described music is it's sort of like a language and you don't tell, you know, you don't tell kids who were two years old, oh, well, you don't really know proper grammar yet. So you can't start speak. I can't talk to you. And I think about it the same way. So I teach these, you know, I had a seven year old saxophone student one time and he was really good. He was playing these jazz licks. He couldn't read music. I don't know that he could read much in general. And I brought him out to a club with me. I had a show. I said, why don't you come to the show? And I'm going to get you paid by the manager of this club at the end of the night because you're helping me with the gig. I mean, he, they, truly, he did bring people because people wanted to see this, uh, his family members, but also people I told there's going to be a seven-year-old sax player. They wanted to see what was going on. So he really did help me. This wasn't, uh, it wasn't ordinary. It was unorthodox, but it was a symbiotic thing. He played, he crushed it. It was great. He, I had the manager pay him in an envelope at the end of the night. Really similar stuff. And so I see the, trust me, I see what you're saying and people need to experience the real world and what they can. And that's how life used to sort of work. I mean, if you had a farm, your kid. Right. Right. And you know, how do you, how do you scale that is your question. At the same time, I just working in a school system, if the, if her question, and I think it is, if, if she's saying, gee, I wonder how we can get these people to loosen their, you know, search a little bit and stop instead of teaching common core math so that people pass a test and that's the only thing they focus on. Can we send, can we get them to buy into, um, you know, this list that we've created of just normal life tasks that people can do at home and then parents can feel like, Hey, I can have my kids do these things. Cause even the school's saying I should have my kids do these things. Um, it doesn't capture the whole thing that you and I think about. You know what? It, but and, uh, yeah, you could also can the kids actually? It, it depends what the parents' work is. Can right. the kids actually contribute to that? So you yeah. might say to her, "Graph uh, tables for me." When I did a, a consulting job once, so we might. So I or you might say to her, "That's a pretty good idea." You know, you're sending. She wants teachers to participate in this program that says, "Let's get kids doing things in the real world." that don't and take on responsibilities that maybe they wouldn't have taken on otherwise, you might say, can we expand on that? Uh, can teachers actually also, can this, this whole program have to do with people really doing things in the real world that let's say a 13 year old wouldn't usually do, you know, uh, mingle with adults, do, do real world. I mean, we're not the first people that thought that one up. Cash is uh -huh. going to school where at some grade level, they have Fridays where you go to New York City and you participate in some, and, you know, it's New York City, for God's sake, yeah. some kind of business or enterprise. Okay. There's nothing that could be better than that in my mind. Um, so I take, take that point from you. <laughs> so that, I'll let you know, I, we're not going to get beyond Lenore's tonight. So there's two more points about Lenore okay. that struck me. She mentioned... You know, I am at, I mean, all I knew about Lenore's son was like, was he nine when he took the subway to uh, Bloomingdale's? That's all I knew about. So, A, I didn't know he's 23 now. I knew nothing about him. And I guess if I would have fantasized, I would say, well, this is a kid who's really self-adept, who knows how to get yeah. around. Right. Taking the subway at nine. But she expressed anxiety about him being in college because he had little exposure I propose what we're talking about to real life work mm. and um, um, and then she said something about she and her husband I think are both writers so I think she was saying well he's not going to become a writer like the two of us I have a daughter who is a writer <clears throat> Anna and I you know I had her say well why don't you write a screenplay and you know that's writing. I mean, we didn't get any money for it, but you know, um, um, at one other point, you know, I don't want to boast about myself as a parent. A lot of people would, uh, uh, wouldn't put me in the pantheon there, but Anna got an idea. A lot of people had dungarees or whatever they call them now and they would get worn out in the knees, but you know, the back pockets and everything would be in place. And I got an idea to make handbags out of those parts of dungarees. And Anna doesn't have a ton of domestic skills, but my former wife did. 
And so my former wife taught her how to, you know, tear, tear the pockets apart. And we had a, a great straight old fashioned singer sewing machine, bam, 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 you know, just like made out of cast iron. And she made them and then she went down to a shop. They had a consignment shop. We lived in Morristown, you know, a little upscale kind of place. And they sold her denim pocket handbags. And I thought to myself, girl's going to be okay. You know what I mean? There's a meta skill there. How do you uh, take hold of your resources so that you can be a head taller than your own skills so that you can pursue something that motivates you? And if you can and was, she didn't uh, actually have those skills. <clears throat> That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, the she didn't have. That's the that's the great thing. You if you have all of those things, you cannot have the skill, but you can access a resource. You can you can develop the skill because it's you're motivated by something. That's like that. The so of I optimism. I kind of thought I was disappointed to hear the North Kanazi say, "Well, her son is not integrated into real world activities." Mm-hmm. But I had you know all I know was he took that subway. Right. And so I imagine, oh, when he was 12, she must have gotten, you know, you know, a job. Well, you know, you're not allowed to have a job in New York when you're 12. But, you know, she must have gotten him involved in the activity, you know, maybe writing things or do uh, who knows? Right, right. And so she's worried that there's like a there's like a purgatory that kids, including her son, are in in college where they're not doing real life things because, well, they're just over intellectualizing everything for four years and then they do real world stuff. And that was disappointing That's to you. That's not how I yeah, think. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing is, I don't think that way. And one reason I don't think that way is because I think about Lenore Skenazi. Yeah. Lenore Skenazi yeah. says, well, you can let your kid go to the corner and buy milk when they're seven, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, you live in a probably pretty safe neighborhood, no cross street crossing. So she's already, I thought, telling a story about doing things. You know, buying milk's not a, you know, a skill, but you know, Anna would uh, go with her friend uh, Aresti, and they shovel snow. That that could make a few bucks in Morristown shoveling snow. You know, I know that we could spend a lot of time on this. And we should probably not do that. But let me say one thing. I, I don't know if you recall. I added. This is the same line of thinking as you. I added that there are kids that I work with who you would think. Uh, would have no chance and actually those people have this real world experience that you can capitalize on and those people I think were easier to work with in terms of getting them ahead. I thought you took that bull and ran with it and that that was my that that was my point was I'm kind of asking the question the thing about sending a kid to the store to get milk is not that now they've developed the skill of getting milk. It's that now they've had some experience and who knows what happens in that experience. And if you allow them to load their days with experiences like that, then they, they start getting all of this, you know, peripheral sort of ex- experience under their belt. And I think that those kids I work with had that. It just, unfortunately, they also had downsides to all of those real life experiences. They were forced into them. But it's like you and I talk about there's something about having adverse experiences that give you experiences in general. And so you, you kind of know things that other people might not. You see things through a lens. That, you brought that. First of all, you, you talked about the kid who was having writing difficulties, but he was good at drawing and he made his own book. Right, right. And then you did bring up the adverse experience thing. Why did... Why... What was the negative? It was like she said there was some negative thing that kids could happen. And I know you made the point. Well, experiencing some negative things and overcoming them. And there's a lot to learn from that. I, I, I remember you're making that point. And one that's, other- where she, that's where she made the leap to. Um, she said, I, I think she said, I agree with that. And there's the thing about kids being, you know, you graduate from high school. And then you're in college for four years, and then you don't do any real life stuff, and which was not a non. It was a non sequitur to me because well, for all the reasons that you mentioned. So I'm I'm just saying that I'm aligned with you there. We're already dealing with kids in whatever school, middle school or whatever, trying to get them to do kind of real things. And you told about how you put the whole the kid drew kind of cartoons and then wrote captions, and he put it together in a book. 
So he's already done a book before he's graduated high school. Right. So hers was a non sequitur because you were sort of saying, we can sort of do kind of real things, for, certainly by college. And my older son got involved with some guy at Wharton who did websites. And that's kind of where, you know, his life went. You know, his major was something like sociology. And then one last point, I don't know that we're gonna get beyond Lenore today, uh, Zach. Um, it almost shocked me. She sort of said, oh, you don't have to worry about any of this because your daughter's like two years old. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember, I do remember her saying that. I, I think what you would sort of say, we're back to like, you know, taking the subway or something. Right, right, right. And I was, that shocked me. I mean, I thought it's obvious that kids can be independent in different ways as appropriate at every age. That one, I think she'll agree with you and, and me on. I, I think she was being abundantly, having abundance of caution that people aren't, don't uh, take that statement that I made flippantly about a two-year-old and think that I'm saying, and think that maybe she's signing on to, yeah, have your two-year-old right. Well, I saw what she says, oh, you don't have to worry about this with the two-year-old. And I, I didn't, you know, that to me, that wasn't a constructive direction. I mean, the question would be, well, what do you feel a two-year-old can safely do independently? Right. You know, you know, a two-year-old can't go to Bloomingdale's. Okay. You know, and a five-year-old can't. Somewhere along the line, right. your kid can go to Bloomingdale's. And so I was assuming, you know, she didn't just discover at nine years old that the kid could do independent things. And I don't I, think she did. I don't think. She's been encouraging him all along. I think so. I really think that that's, I, I really think she does think that. Anyway, remember any saying to you, "Oh, you don't have to worry about it because your daughter's too." Uh, she didn't say that. I I said she mentioned a specific list of uh, of items that she wanted to get on her website, and I said, "Well, I'll be I'll be interested in this, of course. I'll be plugging in because I have a two year old at home." And she said, "Just to be clear, what I'm talking about here." And I think she meant the list of items on her site that she was talking about from kindergarten on. And I think she wanted to just be clear that those specific tasks that she was talking about weren't really for two-year-olds. They have a different set of tasks they could do. She didn't say that, but I assumed that she meant it. You're, what you're saying, of course, is what I was thinking and what I sort of responded to, but uh, you know, I didn't push back a ton. That at any from zero to point to make. Uh, Cassius, who you know, has a younger brother. And at one point, he was making a lot of stupid riddles. It didn't make mm -hmm. sense. And I said, well, let's write all your riddles down. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a list of 20. And I showed it to John, by the way, the trumpet player who you met. <laughs> and John said, these riddles don't make any sense. <laughs> uh, they're not funny. And I said, yeah, but he's five years old. And no. Now he knows you could make up a real, I had an iPhone or an iPad. Now he knows, you know, I mean, Woody Allen must have started out somewhere writing jokes and then you right. they get better and then you write them down and send them to somebody and they give you money. I don't know if, I don't know if you picked up on what I left in, at least at the interview. I was sort of saying she wants to kind of, um, she wants to give schools an overhaul and have people be more in line with the idea of uh, giving kids independence. And I was trying to pull back and say, kind of just naturally daycares, preschools already do that. Like there's no really other way for them to be and best practice for them before kids get into uh, common core elementary school in America is the kids are playing all the time. They're just out there playing and at least in my experience, and I've worked in early ed and I've done consulting with that age range, zero to, zero to three, and my daughter's, of course, in daycare, that all that I can ever see them doing is whatever is emergently interesting to each kid, they run with. And that's just kind of best practice. And I was trying to say to her, that's what early ed is doing. Don't you want to see that scale? That, that was my response. That's my version of what you're saying is that, of course, all kids at all ages no matter how young, 
have some level of independence that can be nurtured and and helped grow. And they have some interests, and like mm-hmm. you remember those kids who interviewed me about gaming addiction, mm-hmm. and you know I said to them, well, they were like in high school. I said, well, you guys are good to go because you're making this podcast. You wrote up some questions. You're doing about yeah. it. something. I- I'm saying. Now, you have to do your English homework, your math homework. I'm not saying you can't learn all the things, but you've got a gig, and this is a reasonable gig. You know, do this gig if you like it. And so anyhow, well, I think we've, uh, you know, we've kind of, we started out with a whole range of things, and I think we've gone over Lenore Skenazi pretty well. I hope it doesn't ruin your relationship with her. I know we had some other topics, which we got to a little bit with Helen Fisher about reductionism mm-hmm. um, and dopamine and addiction. So maybe we can call it a night and, uh, you know, reconvene the next time. Oh, let's do that.